Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Well, really glad to have you all here this morning. I am very, very excited because once again, you know, the New Testament, I get it. It's where it's at. It's, you know, it's where we meet Jesus. It's the, it's the good stuff. But man, the Old Testament's awesome. And so I'm really excited. We're going to do three weeks on another book that's a classic, one of my favorites, the book of Esther. Now, I do want to say up front, this is a, a sermon that I'm, I'm very grateful that a lot of the little ones are out because there's this weird thing we do, um, I don't know why, but some of the favorite stories that we teach our little kids are some of the most like R-rated stories in the Old Testament, and, um, and this is no e- exception. You know, there's a lot of little boys that grow up like, man, Samson, uh, Samson's the bomb. You know, it's like, have you read Samson? You know, Samson's kind of terrible. Um, and, uh, oh, Noah's Ark, it's so cute. Have you read Noah's Ark? It's pretty bleak. Um, and so, uh, this story, I'm not, I'm not going to purposely overdo it, um, but I am going to try my best to point out to you that you may have heard the story of Esther a million times, but I'm guessing you probably haven't really stopped and thought about some of the, the aspects of it quite like uh, we might need to in order to get some of the beauty of the story from it. So, what we're going to do is, this first week, I am going to read kind of from the first third of the book, and then I'm going to talk about a takeaway. Now, that takeaway, it encompasses the whole book. So I know that that might be difficult if you don't know this story at all, um, but I think it'll be worthwhile. And then next week, I'm going to talk from the middle of the story, and I'm going to still, my takeaway will cover the whole book. And then the final week, I'll read from the third portion of Esther, and my takeaway will, you guessed it, will cover the whole book, okay? So I apologize if ever I spoil anything for you. If I say something in week one where you're like, no, don't tell me what happens with Esther. I want to find out. You know, I, I'm sorry if that happens. But um, what we're going to do is we're going to read for a while. I'm going to make some comments, point out some things. And then I have, let's see, I have three takeaways. Look at that. Okay, so let's read together, starting at the very beginning of Esther chapter 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, the nobles of the provinces were present. So, as you'll, if you were to keep reading, as you'd see, for 180 days he throws a party. It's a long time to throw a party. Um, and, and actually, it's 80 days and a week. He has this huge banquet. And in his drunkenness, and what you'll find, the story of Esther is all the characters and all the details are kind of like... <laughs> Big time. There's no, you know how people say everything's bigger in Texas? You know, you go order a steak and it's the Texas steak and so it's huge or whatever. You know, actually, I got to go to Alaska for a wedding one time and there was a place where if you wanted to order the half order, you ordered the Texas plate because it's half the size of Alaska. So they were trying to rub it in. I was like, listen here, 
you know. But anyway, um, so I got up and left. That no, I'm just kidding. Um, but anyway, the idea is everything in this story is just really exaggerated. A hundred, hundred eighty day banquet. All the anyway. So the king, you'll find the king is kind of an imbecile in the story because he's constantly drunk, constantly angry, and he only does things that his advisors ad- advise him. You almost know he almost does nothing on his own volition in this story. Everything is an advisor tells him, "Hey, you ought to do this," and then an advisor says, "You ought to do this," and every time, oh sure, that's a great idea. So he commands, in his drunkenness, he commands his queen Vashti to come out and present herself in front of all his nobles. Now, the belief is, from most scholars, that whenever he says that she needs to come out in her royal crown, what is implied is that he wants her to come out just wearing the crown and nothing else, and to parade around for all of his princes and officials to see. Like, look at how, look at my trophy wife. And for reasons we can't imagine, she doesn't want to do that. And so what happens is there's this thing where everyone is very upset and all of the princes and stuff go, hey, this would be a really bad precedent if the wife doesn't listen to the husband. So you need to make a rule that says all wives have to do exactly what their husband says. So he, he makes that rule. And then it says later, chapter 2, starting in verse 1, later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what, and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants, they proposed, not his idea, his attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province. Now remember, we just read, he was the king of how many provinces? 127. So let the commissioners in these provinces of the realm bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch. It would make sense for the king's eunuch to be in charge of all these beautiful women because he's not going to be able to do anything with them. And so who, who is in charge of the women? And let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the, the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This advice appealed to the king and he followed it. So this is an example of something we don't tell the little kids. But basically, the um, thing you might imagine is that all these commissioners say, Hey, y'all, whoever is the most beautiful woman, come sign up for a chance to be queen. That is not what happened. These men basically said, Who are the most beautiful virgins in this town? And they went and took these women from their homes and brought them to the capital. This is at least 127. Maybe you could argue if each, if each person brought in 10. You're talking about 1,000 trafficked women brought into the capital of Susa, okay? Like I said, we don't teach that in Sunday class, but it's a reality, okay? Now, there in the citadel of Susa, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Remember when that happened? Nebuchadnezzar brought them into exile. Some of them had gone back, but some were still in exile in Babylon. Among those taken captive by Jehoiachin, king of Judah, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. We'll come back to this. But now not only is Esther an orphan, but she is now a woman that has been trafficked to the capital. Okay? When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. 
Now the way this would work is each of these women, after their treatments, would get a night with the king. And if, the, if it went poorly, then for the rest of their life they would be a young widow because there's no leaving a king's harem once you're in it. So all of these women would be, for the rest of their life, stuck living in the harem as a widow. Okay? Because they didn't do enough. Now if you were lucky, the king liked you enough, you got put into the rotation and you got to be blessed to be one of the king's wives and so you would get to bear children for the king and those children would get to someday be princes and princesses. And then the third and final option would be if you were the top choice, you got to be queen. Okay? Like I said, the stuff we don't talk about in Sunday class with six-year-olds. But... Um, she pleased him, verse 9, she pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. By the way, the he there is Haggai. Haggai was pleased by her. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Verse 10, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day, Mordecai walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King, into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months. Like I said, everything is bigger in this story. 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the, from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of this guy. I, or, I don't know how to say this. Shasagaz. Um, we really need to bring that one back, you know. Um, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown, probably the same crown that Vashti was supposed to wear, on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with, the, with royal liberality. Okay. Now we see in ancient Babylon that the status of a woman was defined by her beauty and how good she was in bed. Thank goodness we don't live in a time like that anymore. Am I right? So... As you can imagine, reading this story is kind of a difficult read, right? It's kind of tough. But I believe you're going to see there's something very important about all the things that I've tried to emphasize. But the first place that we have to start is this. Esther is not Daniel. Daniel and Esther are very similar. Both captive Israelites in Babylon. Both taken into the presence of the royals and the kings. But what does Daniel do? Daniel, from the get-go, says, I will not eat this food. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to touch this stuff because my God and my identity as an Israelite says I'm not going to do it. What does Esther do? Not that. Okay? One of the top things about this story that is very, you know, frankly, Vashti is one of the people that is kind of a hero because she's like, I'm not going to do that. Esther doesn't. She doesn't say that. One of the striking themes in the book of Esther that you see throughout the whole book is just how morally ambiguous, say that word in your head with me, don't say that loud, morally ambiguous, ambiguous all the characters are. You see that there is a lot of drinking and partying, a lot. 
There is a lot of anger. There's a lot of sex. There's a lot of lying and murder. And Mordecai and Esther are all mixed in all of it. Esther, she lies about her identity. Now, you might say, no, no, she didn't lie. No one asked her, are you a Jew? Well, it's a lie of omission then. She lies about her identity. She eats all the food that is given to her, which would be against Jewish dietary restrictions. She sleeps with a man before marriage multiple times. And then she marries a Gentile. All of these things are things that are not okay. They are morally not good. But here's the question that all of us have to ask ourselves. What would you have done in Esther's place? If you were Esther's best friend, would you have told her to do anything any differently? This little girl who's an orphan, who's probably grown up doing everything she can to make it in life, is now in another situation where she has been taken from her home and is in this different place. Would we have any room to blame her for any of the decisions that she's made? I know I'm not reading that going, Oh, come on, Esther. I can't believe you're not standing up for yourself. We see, and part of why I think this is so important, why I think this is such a beautiful thing for us to take away, is that we know that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. But we are constantly navigating a world in which the lines between light and darkness are often pretty fuzzy. Now I know, some of us in this room are wired more as black and white thinkers, and some of us are more in the middle, what some might call gray. But I firmly believe that no matter who you are, I've never lived a day, and you haven't either, until Jesus comes back again when all things are light. You with me? We constantly live lives that are not hypothetical, like, oh, that would be cool. We are all living in a gray, in an already kingdom of light and a not yet kingdom of darkness. You with me? And so, we are constantly called in the Bible to be the light of the world. But what is the thing Jesus says right before that? You are also supposed to be the salt of the earth. And salt is used to preserve meat. How do you preserve meat with salt? You press it deep inside of it. So I'm supposed to be deeply in the world and light of the world. Jesus says in John, I pray that God, that not that you take them out of the world, but that you put them in the world, but that they not be of the world. So we're constantly in the struggle. And one thing that you have to hear me say, you cannot un- misunderstand me on this. this. If anybody walks away from this sermon and doesn't notice this clear caveat, then I'll be very sad. God does not want us to make morally ambiguous choices. God always is wanting us to choose life or to choose Christ-like things. But usually we are in places and situations where we feel like we're flying blind in what that looks like. Okay? Does that make sense? I'm not preaching a sermon up here that God's like, you know, just live in the gray. Live it up. Don't be too bad. Don't be too good. Live right in the middle. No. But what I'm saying is, is there's a reality in this story that we can't deny that we are often in these tough situations flying blind. Whenever... We've all been in work settings where you're with the guys at work, you're with the ladies at work, and it's hard to decide what exactly is right and wrong. I've been, we've been in high school locker rooms where we're all having a great time, and you're like, man, I can't decide where the line is right now between I want to be with my friends and not be the downer Christian who's like, you guys are all so bad, I can't believe you're doing that. 
But then at the same time, I don't want to be like, hey, yeah, this is great. Let's, let's go for it. You know, we want to be the person who I've been on bachelor parties. Y'all have been, some of y'all have been to bachelorette parties. You want to be that friend that's having a great time. But you're also like, I don't really want to do that. Let's not go there. Let's not go that far. You're in this gray situation. You might say that you've been to sporting events. I have, where I want to shout at the ref, like, what on earth was that? But then whenever I look around at the crowd and I see the, like, just the disgusting way that people will talk to another human being, I'm like, oh, man, gosh, this is, this is the worst. Should I, should I turn around? You know, one of my morally gray situations I thought of during prepping for this was standing in line that one time at that restaurant where the guy in front of me had come back and was just blasting the waitress for messing up his order, just going just so mean. And I remember eventually just, I had to stop and say, hey, be nice to this lady. This lady's working the cash register. She didn't make your burger. Like, you know. And then I remember going to the bathroom and I cried because I, I felt so weird about it. But that was a gray situation. Should I say something to this guy? Should I not? It was gray. I was in the gray. We've been invited to the wedding before that we did not support. But we love the person. So we want to be supportive. And we go, what do I do? Part of me thinks Christ would tell me I shouldn't go to this wedding because I don't support it. Another part of me thinks Christ would want me to go to this wedding because I love this person. What do I do? We've all been here in the gray. I have two examples of gray. I, I talked through with Catherine some examples of gray areas. One is a story. One is a movie. You know, come on. You got to hear a movie reference from me. But the thing was, I, I had a lot more analogies, but I decided to only use these two because of this. I thought there are going to be, for every single story I use, there is going to be half of the crowd. Well, I don't know the percentages. There is going to be two people in the crowd. One person that hears it and goes, that's not morally ambiguous. That's... That's easy. You don't have to make that choice. Or you, you, you should have done that. And then the other half is, that's not morally ambiguous. It's clear. You do not do that. Does that make sense? And all of us would have a varying degree of what we see in that. So here, let me tell you my story first, then the, the movie reference. I reference Hurricane Harvey a lot. It was a very impactful moment. And I remember, I've told you all before, for like... Three months, maybe two months, I did not have a job because my, our church was flooded. So every day I would get up and I would ride my bike if it was close to my apartment or I would drive if it was far. And we, I would start at a house. I would muck it until lunch, eat lunch, muck until 4 p.m., ride my bike home. That was it, every day. And if that house was done, I'd move on to the next house. Sometimes it was me and the family. Sometimes it was 10 of us in there. But one time, this guy who's co-worker went to my church. His house flooded near an old Katy. That's what you call like Katy proper, Katy High School. All of the rest is new Katy. Old Katy is the one that shows up on Friday night, all that stuff, okay? Old Katy. Uh, we went there. We worked on this guy's house. This guy was so appreciative of like 12 of us from church coming. Afterwards, he comes out and he, hand, he brings out to all of us Lone Star beer. I've got my elders with me. I've got my preacher with me. I've got, we're all, he's handing out Lone Star beer to us. And I remember I'm in a gray area. Now, like I said, some of you in here, they're like, that's not gray. That's fine. Some of you in here is, oh, that's not gray. That's bad. But what I remember is I remember thinking, man, I've kind of always kind of been careful about this around church people because I know for church people, this can be a problem. I'm trying to be a good example. And at the same time, I also am someone that firmly believes we've really missed the boat on alcohol. You know, the Bible's clear about drunkenness, but the Bible's also clear that there's no problem with alcohol. Jesus drank a lot of wine. 
Okay? Also, Paul or Peter or Paul in 1 Timothy 5 says a little bit of wine. He says, stop drinking water. Wine is good for your digestive system. Okay? It's in the Bible. But what I remember is I remember thinking, this person is trying to show hospitality and thank us. What would be the thing to do to say, you know, appreciation, right? So the movie reference is there's a movie written by a guy named Martin Scorsese. Do you all know who Martin Scorsese is? He wrote The Departed. He wrote, he's so famous, but he's also a very devout Christian. And he wrote this movie called Silence. And the person who funded this movie is a member of the Church of Christ in Midland. So that's pretty cool. Just so you know, this is a blockbuster movie. Liam Neeson's in it. Andrew Garfield's in it. Adam Driver's in it. It's big time, okay? It's called Silence. It's really long. But it's about these monks that go to Japan in the 17th century because they've heard that their teacher has maybe left the faith and they're going to go try and help him. And basically, the second they get there, they are converting these residents to the faith and they're constantly facing suffering. And throughout, this missionary is praying to God trying to hear God's voice, and the title of the movie is called Silence. God, I pray to you, and all I hear is silence. And at the climactic scene of the movie, there are a number of these newly converted Christians that are being tortured. They're, I don't want to get too gory, but they're hanging upside down. They have a small little cut behind their neck or behind their ear, so their blood is dripping out enough that they're not going to pass out, but they'll basically slowly bleed out, hanging upside down. And the missionary is there, and the the person in the province says, if you want to save these people's lives, you say you love them, right? You say you love these people. If you want to save their lives, denounce Jesus. So he's here in this position. What do I do? I want to save these people that I love, but I also don't want to denounce Jesus. A gray area. What would Jesus do? Would Jesus save the people being tortured, or would Jesus denounce himself? What would Jesus do? It's a gray area, and he's there, and by a bold move by Scorsese, for the first time in the movie, you hear God speak and tell the missionary what to do. I'm not going to say what he says. But it's an example, and all of these, I'm using these because I want to make this perfectly clear. We are living, whether, if you, if you started this and you're like, Drew, you know, Following Jesus is pretty easy. You do the right thing or you don't. This story is about the middle between those two. Sometimes we look at the options and we just have no idea what to do. The path, which one of them is the godly one? Sometimes we look at the options and we just feel like we have to go with the crowd. Esther, in, in many ways, is kind of in the world's formation machine. Can you imagine her maybe liking the fact that she's really good at this being the queen thing? Is there any part of you that she gets there and she's scared and then before long she's like, dang, I keep on moving up the ranks. Man, I'm, I'm in the best place. Oh man, I'm, I'm the queen now. You can imagine she might kind of be enjoying it a little bit. That's a tough place to be. Sometimes we look at all the options and we might be scared at the social cost of going with God. To use, the, uh, to use Daniel's analogy again, there was a cost that all of them took in saying, oh, I'm going to eat this food, or I am not going to bow down to this golden idol. I am not going to stop praying. All of them had costs, and there's a chance that Esther, you know, had whole life had been like, I'm going to make it, and I'm going to, I'm going to keep going. And here she's in another place where, like, God, I love you, but I'm going to keep going. In the face, this is the third and big point, in the face of our moral compromises, God will not abandon His promises, His purposes, or His people. One of today's number one powerful messages from the book of Esther is that God does not give up on Esther because of her moral compromise. 
God doesn't go, oh, you morally compromised. I guess I can't use you anymore. And God doesn't give up on us in our moral ambiguity. Are we guilty sometimes? Are we going through the world's beauty treatments? Are there ways in which, sure, I haven't been abducted and taken into the capital and put through these treatments, but I am in a world that's constantly shaping and forming us to say, hey, you should take these kind of treatments to become this kind of person because this is how you're going to make it in our world. Do we all sometimes compromise in that? Absolutely. Do we all ever have our moments where we start out at a job and we go, this is great. And before long, we're making our way up the job. And before we notice, we're like, wow, I really made it a long way and I'm really not where I thought I was going to be. I thought I was going to be a different person than who I am now. And it might be because you were getting formed into someone you didn't expect to be. Were we selling out to the world? I don't think so. But were we living in a moral ambiguity? Probably. In the end, you know, spoiler alert, God is patient with her. He grows her. No matter how badly she sold out, like we said before, what, what could we have expected to do ourselves in that same situation? She is not written out of God's story and His purposes. And you and I are not written out of God's story and purposes. Think of all the heroes in the Bible. Think of all of them except for Jesus. And I can tell you how every one of them had a moment where their morals didn't look so always perfect. Because they were real people living in a real world, real situations. And God doesn't say, Oh, Abraham, Moses, David, you're out. He says, I still am going to use you for my purposes in my story. So I'm going to end on this quote from Tim Keller. It's dynamite. Your assumption of the message of the Bible is, I'm talking about you, I'm talking to me. Your assumption of the message of the Bible is, God blesses and saves those who live morally exemplary lives. When I repented and I got in those waters, I never messed up again. This is not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that God persistently and continuously gives His grace to people who don't ask for it, don't deserve it, and don't fully appreciate it after they get it. That's good news, y'all. That's great news. And so if any of you are listening or watching online and you've felt shame thinking, well, I don't deserve to get to be a part of God's story. I don't deserve to get to be a part of a family because I've done too much wrong. I've messed up too much. The story of Esther and the story of Jesus is you have never done so much that you are taken out of my plan to use you in my story, okay? And if any of you would like to know more about that, we'd love to talk to you. And if you have any prayer requests, elders are going to be standing at the doors while we stand and sing.